Our sermon scripture comes from Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you, preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. opportunity to be with the family of God that you have given us in your mercy and your grace. We thank you as we remember that you came to us 2,000 years ago as a, as a child, as a baby, a, a vulnerable infant. And in that um, vulnerability was the salvation of the world, it was the offering of, new, of a new start, an offering of um, a new life of forgiveness, of hope, of mercy that would endure for the rest of time. Please give us hearts that are ready to hear. Give us minds that are quick to understand. Um, most of us, most of all, help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and our strength. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are, uh, technically we began Advent last week. I was not here uh, and so our Advent sermon series is beginning this week, but Advent is typically the four Sundays leading up to Christmas uh, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But the thing about Advent is that it's more than just celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's more than just nativity. It's broader than that. 
And you can actually see that from what the word Advent means. It literally means the coming or the arrival. And so part of it is we look back, we remember the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but there's also a sense in which we're looking forward and we're longing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why traditionally Christians, as they celebrated Advent, there's certainly been a sense of peace and hope, which is what we traditionally associate with the time of Christmas. There's also been repentance and mourning. When you look at the way our culture celebrates Christmas, because we do still celebrate Christmas, it's probably the most celebrated holiday, I think, in our country. Um, it looks a lot more like a Hallmark Christmas than a Christian Christmas. Something that's a lot more influenced by those really cheesy Hallmark videos um, that some of us love so much. Um, you know, you could summarize it in that song, have a holly jolly Christmas, the best time of the year, and we think of tinsel and lights and uh, mistletoe and cookies. There's this excitement and magic in the air. But honestly, it's a Christmas is shaped by industries and marketers who are trying to make money because if you're going to capture this Christmas spirit, you better buy all the decor and buy presents. Um, and at the end of the day, it's something that's more for kids than for adults. So the other, this past week, I was speaking to my neighbor, and I found out that his sister passed away from ovarian cancer over Thanksgiving. Um, she was married, and she had a, a son who was in high school. And so my neighbor and his sister's husband and son need something a little more substantive than have a holly jolly Christmas. Those of us who live in the real world, the world that breathe, that, that bleeds, that smells, that you can touch and feel, we need something that speaks to both the beauty and the wonder of this world, but also to the tragedy and the difficult times. And the beautiful thing about Advent is that space for both. It has space for delight. As you remember, reflect that God, the I am, came and made his dwelling among us. But then also, um, as we long for the coming back of Jesus, who will put an end to all that is wrong. And so, again, as Advent, part of Advent is waiting for Jesus. That's the theme of our Advent series, waiting. And we're going to be looking at three different mysteries that we experience in waiting. And the first one is the mystery of God's providence. That'll be this week. Next week will be the mystery of suffering. And then the week after that will be the mystery of the Spirit. Today, again, we're looking at the mystery of God's providence. Um, I'm going to go ahead and switch to the pulpit mic, Chandler. Okay. So the outline for today, we're going to look at three truths of God's providence. First, God's providence means he is always present. Second, God's providence is often unseen. Third, waiting is a normal part of the mystery of God's providence. You know what? My pack's off. That's why you can't hear me. Technical difficulties, y'all. It's on. All right. <laughs> hey, that's a good way to, you know, to avoid that awkward silence. Put in some background music. Okay, well, okay, I think I'm on. All right, so again, because no one was hearing me when I said those three points. Our three points, three truths that we will learn about God's providence as we look at the story of Joseph is first, God's providence means he's always present. Second, God's providence is often unseen. And third, waiting is a normal part of the mystery of God's providence. So the story of Joseph covers 13 chapters, so we're not going to read all of that, obviously. I'm going to give you just a summary of the story. Most of us are probably familiar with it. 
But again, Joseph, he's the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. He was the firstborn of Rachel, who was Jacob, his father's favorite wife. One reason why you should only have one wife is that then your wife is always your favorite wife. But anyways, Jacob, or Joseph is the firstborn of the favorite wife, and so he was favored by his father. This led to obvious resentment with his brothers. And in fact, his brothers hated him and eventually kidnapped him, sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Then he ends up in prison. And then he gets an amazing opportunity where he interprets Pharaoh's dream, becomes a governor of Egypt, the second in command. And there's this incredible ironic moment where his brothers, who sold him into Egypt, come to Egypt because they need grain. There's famine in the land. And they come to, to Joseph, who's administering the, the grain, and they don't even recognize him. Um, and, uh, and they fall down before him, and he kind of plays with them a little bit, and then eventually invites his brothers and his, and his father to join him in Egypt, and so he's able to preserve them from starving to death. Wonderful story. Many parts of it point to the providence of God, but before we jump into our first point, let's just define providence. Because if you open your Bible and you turn to the back, there's this thing called concordance, which shows you all the words are in your Bible, and you go to providence, there's nothing there. At least in most English translations, it's just not a word that you'll find in the Bible. Kind of like the word Trinity. Even though Trinity is a teaching of Christians that every Christian believes, whether you're Roman, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox. But if you look in your Bible, you're not going to find the word Trinity. The word Trinity is a word that sums up other teachings that are clearly found in the Scriptures. That's the same thing with providence. The word providence is a concept that touches on kind of interwoven truths about God's character and actions. I'm going to put up a, a definition by the theologian Millard Erickson. He defines providence like this. He says, The providence of God means the continuing action of God in preserving his creation and guiding it toward his intended purposes. There's two concepts here that are important. Preserving and guiding. This is what providence covers. Now, we'll talk a lot about sovereignty, but providence is different than sovereignty. We talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his almightiness. When we say God is sovereign, it means God can do what he wants to do because he's God. But there's no sense of goodness in that definition, at least inherent in the word sovereign. In the ancient world, you call the king a sovereign because they were the king that could do whatever they wanted. God is sovereign. But his providence talks about his power, but in three specific aspects. His power that he uses to preserve the world to guide all of history toward the ends that he wants. And lastly, it's his power according to his character. So it's God's almighty power according to his goodness, according to his wisdom, according to his love. And so what this means when we talk about providence, the promise of providence to us is that there are no accidents in life. But God is preserving and guiding all things, no matter what's happened in your life. It's not an accident. It's not for nothing. But God is providently present in that, and he's guiding it, and he's using it to preserve and guide. This is our first truth, is that God's providence means he's always present. When we talk about God's providence, again, it's his continuing action in our lives. God is not like a watchmaker who made the, the world, the cosmos, like a watch, made it to operate by certain laws, and then just stands back and lets it run. That's not the God of the Bible. He's a God who remains intimately involved in the workings of his creation. And we see this all over the story. So in the story, again, with Joseph, uh, again, Joseph is spoiled. 
by his father, and his brothers hate him. Now, we talk about hate among siblings, and we probably use it hyperbolically, but his brothers legitimately hated him. And in fact, there's one point where, um, well, let me just read this. So again, in Genesis 37, verses 3 to 4, now Israel, that's Joseph's father, Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now here's the thing. These are brothers who have already demonstrated that they are violent men. In chapter 34, um, one of their sisters is raped by a man from another village. And so Simeon and Levi go into that village and don't just kill that man. They slaughter the entire village. People who had nothing, no part of that sin. These are the brothers who now hate Joseph. Joseph is in danger. As long as Joseph is with his father, they're not going to touch him. But at one point, Jacob sends his brother Joseph, sorry, sends his son Joseph to go check on the brothers who are out with their sheep. And now Joseph's in danger. Again, like when Joseph's with his dad, the brothers aren't going to kill him. They respect the father in this society. The father was a patriarch. He you know, determines who gets what inheritance. But in the story, Joseph goes away from his dad, and it says that his brothers saw him from afar. Before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. That's what I'm saying. Like, I've been angry at my brother before. Never really thought about killing him. Thought about wounding him, you know, in some small ways. But killing, these guys hated Joseph. And here's Joseph. He's away from his dad. He's, he's, he's approaching men who he thinks are his kin, who are conspiring to kill him. He's in a dangerous place. This is a situation that you'd say, where is God present here? How is God going to work this one out? But yet God is still providentially present, even in this situation. And, and God inspires the heart of Reuben, the oldest brother, to spare Joseph. Reuben despised Joseph just as much as any other brothers. We don't know why. But Reuben convinces the other brothers, the eldest, hey, let's not kill Joseph. Even in the situation among the violence of his brothers, God is providentially present. But second, okay, well, then, then the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, so that's not that great. And so here's Joseph, and he's, he's 250 miles away from where his family lives. It's a two-week journey. So imagine where you could get in two weeks using modern transportation techniques. And that's, that's the other side of the world. That's where Joseph ends up. He's in a country that despises Hebrews. The Egyptians wouldn't even eat with Hebrews. There's a whole lot of racism going on. And he's a slave, which is the lowest level of the socioeconomic ladder. Is God present here? Is God at work in this situation? Well, even in Egypt, even as a slave, even as a Hebrew in Egypt, um, Joseph gains favor with one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And he rises to be head over his household. God is providentially present, even there. And then somehow Joseph ends up in prison. Now, we talk about prison. Prison's never a good thing. No one wants to go to prison. A prison in ancient Egypt was like a dungeon. Think like medieval, like you're in a, 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 like a you know, cell underground somewhere. There's no like laws about humane treatment. In the darkest pit you can imagine, Joseph finds himself as God present there. But even in a dungeon, God is providentially active and he brings Joseph out. We see from the story of Joseph, looks at God's providence. We see that his presence, 
God's providential presence is working in every situation, no matter how dark it might be. You can't get darker than a dungeon in ancient Egypt, and yet still God is present and at work. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations, and frankly, it's just hard to see, how is God at work here? Like, what could God possibly, what could God possibly do in the situation? When I was in college, uh, there was a study abroad opportunity at my school where they would take students, and they'd put them in some most difficult situations in the world. I mean, they'd send students to work with, like, sex trafficking victims in India or go to, you know, war-torn villages in Africa. And it was a, it was a, it was a competitive uh, program to get into. There was, like, a whole year preparation. You took classes for it. I mean, they tried to prepare you. But some of these students would come home basically traumatized, having seen stuff they, they can't explain and unable to reconcile the God they read of in the Bible, how could he be present in even dark places, some of the darkest places you can imagine. But the story of Joseph tells us that even in the most darkest of places, God is still providentially working. Joseph was trafficked. He was sold into slavery. It's hard to get darker than that. Yet God is providentially present the promise of providence, Vine Street, is that there's no hole so deep that God is not present even there, preserving and guiding all things towards the ends he wants. So that's the first truth we see about providence, is that providence is God's presence. It's present everywhere. But the second truth we see about providence is that God's providence is often unseen. When you look at the story of Joseph in summary, it seems pretty miraculous. Here's this Hebrew, uh, Hebrew slave who then rises to be the second most powerful man and probably the most powerful nation at the time. Pretty miraculous. But you break it down to its component parts, and basically each kind of turn or of events can be explained by natural causes. There's only one true miracle in this whole story, and that's when uh, Joseph interprets dreams. But otherwise, it's all stuff that can be explained. Again, when Joseph is approaching his brothers and they're going to kill him, God doesn't intervene with like a bolt of lightning. It's Reuben, his older brother, who decides to step in. You can think of all kinds of rational explanations for why Reuben would do that. He's the eldest. He's probably worried that his dad's going to find out what that'll do to his inheritance. Maybe he's feeling some qualms of, again, they're talking about murdering him. Maybe he has a queasy stomach. But it's Reuben that saves Joseph. And then when Joseph goes to Egypt, he gets bought by the captain of the guard, who's a very influential official, it's like, well, that, that can be explained too. I mean, Joseph was 17, 18. He was young. He was healthy. He was strong. He was smart. Someone like a captain of the guard would, would want to buy someone like that for his household. And then Joseph keeps getting leadership opportunities, not because of just dumb luck, but he's clearly a really gifted leader. He's good at organizing. He's responsible. He's hardworking. He's smart. And so people would see that, recognize that, and he would get opportunities. Again, the only part where we see, oh, and then even, with, even when Joseph is, is then um, given that kind of meteoric rise under Pharaoh and becomes second in the country, I mean, there are stories left, right, and center you can find of powerful people just having a hunch about someone and giving them an opportunity that they then run with. There's only one true miracle in this story, and that's when Joseph interprets the dream. And this gives us an idea of how God operates. God does perform miracles. We know that. But his typical mode of operation is to work through the world as he designed it. 
God can do, perform miracles, absolutely. But his providence, his continuing working in our lives is typically through the world as he designed it. Think about this. Our faith resolves around the fact that we believe a man died on a cross 2,000 years ago for the sins of the world. But when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die by a miracle, right? There wasn't, I mean, him dying on the cross, all that he did was he allowed his body to function as bodies function when they're crucified. It's just the ordinary way that human bodies work. And yet God's hand was providentially working behind that event. Obviously, if it wasn't, we're all like blowing smoke. This is how God typically works. This is what's called the concurrence or the cooperation of God's providence, which is that behind every natural event, everything that, we, that happens that we can see, there's two explanations. There's a physical explanation where Jesus died because his heart stopped beating, because he was you know, lacerated and punctured and bludgeoned and suffocating. But behind every natural event, there's also a divine explanation. So think of it like this. When an astronomer looks at the stars in his role as a professional scientist, he'll document the kind of orbits of the planets, the, the, the gravitational pull of the stars. He'll explain all this. This is why stars move this way, planets move this way, the orbits this way. And then he thinks we're done. That's it. He's explained it all. And he's not wrong. It's not a wrong explanation. It's just incomplete. Because as the, Isaiah tells us in 40 verses 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Is it true that the stars come out because of the orbit of the earth and the sun? And, and yes, but it also comes out because there's one who's created them, who calls them out by name, who's numbered them, who, because he sustains them every day, not one is missing. The astronomer and the Christian look at the same natural event and they both give true statements. But if all we say is, well, no, it's just because of the orbits of the planets, well, that's, it's true, but it's just, that's a very partial explanation of what's really going on. God is also providentially at work behind all of that, preserving it. And so, anyways, the point of all that is because of that, it's really easy to miss God's hand. We can, God could be working in our lives, doing things, but because there are natural explanations for what he's doing, we can miss it. And just be like, well, that was fortunate. That worked out well. It's easy to settle for what our eyes can see, for just partial explanations. So Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And part of what that means is that every morning, God continues to preserve you, your breath, your body, your being. I mean, when you woke up this morning, did you thank God, God, thank you for breath in my lungs? Or did you just assume, well, of course I have breath in my lungs. That's how my body works Maybe you're young and healthy or you're old and healthy, but your body's working. Like, that's just the way bodies work. Well, that's a partial explanation. The full explanation is we have breath this morning because God preserves us. 
The same thing when the sun came up in the morning. You thank God that once again God brought the sun up. Well, of course the sun comes up. The earth orbits every, you know, on its axis every 24 hours. That's our 24-hour day. Yes, that's true, but it's also true that God is the one who sustains that. And so if God didn't decide every morning to bring the sun up, it wouldn't come up. And so every morning, his mercies are new because the sun came up this morning. It's so easy to live as functional atheists. We, we say we believe in God, but, you know, we're, we're, we're ignoring the fact that God is providentially active behind all things. And if, you know, if, if, if God stopped us to sustain us, it's not that we die it's that we would cease to be. So every morning, his mercies are new. Because every morning, if you're alive, your lungs fill with air, your heart beats, the sun comes up. And this is a crucial truth. Because God is providentially directing all things, there are no coincidences. They just don't exist for a Christian. The word fortune, luck, they don't have meaning in the world we live in because God is providentially directing everything. So you got a job promotion, right? When you needed extra money, you think that was a happy coincidence. No, it's not. God's the one who moves all creation. Or you get an encouraging word when you need it, and you think, well, that person's just an encouraging person. No, yes, but God works through those things to bring all things to completion. Or you go to Washington, D.C., and you meet your future wife, for the one week that she's there, oh, that's a little bit autobiography for me. It's not a happy coincidence, that's providence. So the question is, what are the happy coincidences you've been experiencing in this season of life? Maybe you have good health, you got over a sickness, or God's preserved you through a sickness. Maybe there's a sin that he's given you victory over or relief from anxiety or depression, or maybe there's been a relationship that's been reconciled. That's God's providence. This is his hand. Maybe he's not speaking to you in a dream or sending bolts of lightning, but God is active in those ways. Every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Let's give thanks for his providential provision. That's the second point. God's providence is easy to miss. The third point Waiting, the third truth, waiting is a normal part of the mystery of God's providence. I'm going to make an observation about Joseph's life. He did a lot of waiting. He did a lot of waiting. So one of the things that gets him in trouble with his brothers, he has this dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And then as a 17-year-old, he goes and he brags to them. It's like, this is an immature thing to do. Not going to endear you to your brothers. You're like, hey, I had a dream from the Lord that one day you guys are going to bow down to me. But even though he was immature and he told them, it was a true prophetic dream from the Lord. But the thing is, he had to wait 23 years for that to be fulfilled. He was 17 when he had the dream. He was about 40 when his brothers actually came and bowed down to him as the governor of Egypt. 23 years. He was also in slavery for around 13 years. So he's sold in slavery when he's 17 and he enters Pharaoh's court when he's 30. For 13 years, he's in slavery, waiting for God to free him. And then the one that gets me, in Genesis 41, verse 1, so when he's in the dungeon, he meets a cupbearer, a former cupbearer of Pharaoh, who has a dream. He interprets his dream. The cupbearer is then restored to service with Pharaoh, and the cupbearer tells Joseph, hey, when I'm back in power, I'll get you out. But then when the cupbearer gets back in power, he forgets Joseph. 
And in chapter 41, verse 1, it says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. It was two more years of Joseph sitting in that dungeon before Pharaoh had his dream that gave Joseph his opportunity to get his freedom. Two whole years. Give some context. Two years ago, none of us knew what COVID-19 was. Imagine all that time. You're just sitting in a dungeon. You're not getting visions from the Lord. Just waiting. And that brings a pretty natural question is, why did Joseph have to wait so long? I was, I mean, was that extra two years really necessary? You know, I, you could say, well, he's learning stuff in the dungeon. He's learning humility and trust. But I feel like if you're in a dungeon, there's a pretty steep learning curve and then diminishing returns. So I'm guessing you learn a whole lot in that first six months, and then every year after that, like, you're not learning that much more. Why two more years? And at least a, a pretty natural question that we often ask, God, why are you making me wait? Whatever difficult season we're in, whatever we're waiting for, why are you making us wait so long? Why does he keep us in these seasons so long? Why has it been so long since he's spoken to us? The thing is, the story of Joseph doesn't answer those questions. It doesn't tell us why God had Joseph wait. It just tells us that he, that he did. But in that, it teaches us something about the mystery of God's providence. And the first thing it teaches us is that waiting is part of that mystery. You know, we, don't, we don't know why we wait so long. Why did Joseph have to wait another two years? What was the point of that? God could have got him out there in a minute. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. God is God. We are on earth. We don't know his ways. We don't understand why he does what he does. Why does he make you wait? In all the ways that will be hard. We don't know. It's a mystery. It's something we don't fully understand and we might never understand until we see God face to face. But, secondly, we can know from this story that waiting is going to be a normal part of God's providence. He doesn't make us wait because he's angry at us or because we've sinned or screwed up or we're less favored than others. Like, waiting is normal. It doesn't tell us why Joseph waits, but we see that he certainly waits a whole lot. That's just part of the normal part of God's providence, that we wait, waiting for a new career opportunity, working a dead-end job you don't like, waiting for a spouse, waiting for discernment when you're, when you're trying to make some life decision that's just a big decision and God's not making it clear. That's agonizing. We're just going to involve waiting, even if it's just waiting at a stoplight. But the question for us, okay, so we know we're going to be, if you want to follow Jesus, God's going to put you through seasons of waiting, and that's just going to happen. So the question is, how are you going to handle that waiting? Okay, so Joseph, he spends two years in a dungeon. Two years after he talked to this guy, said, I'm going to get you out. It seemed like God was at work, and then the guy doesn't. Radio silence from God for two years. Where would your heart be? I mean, think how we all responded, uh, you know, two years into COVID, and we're like, I'm done. I'm so done with this. Well, imagine you spent two years in a dungeon. Would you be angry at God, embittered? Would you be an atheist by then? No God could exist that would keep me in here. What's amazing is that when Joseph is finally called to Pharaoh, 
two years later. This is what he says in Genesis 41, 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. After two years, Joseph is still saying, God is, God is the one who does this. I can't. God is the one who will give you that answer, Pharaoh. He's the one I serve. He's the one I trust. Joseph had a lot of waiting. He was a slave for 13 years. But what Joseph did is he was faithful in the opportunities he had. So he ends up in the household of an official in Egypt. He works hard in there. He didn't want to be a slave. I mean, think what Joseph could have done if he was a free man. But he was faithful in the opportunities he had, and he continued to trust God in the midst of it. So a question for us. You know, God's plan for your life, I'm going to give you a truth. This is from the Lord. It's a freebie. God's, going to, God's plan for you is going to involve waiting. It just will. So how will you handle that? Will you grumble about it? Waste the opportunities that you have because you want opportunities that God is not giving you at that time? Or will you serve faithfully in the ways that God provides, trusting in his providence? Because at the end of the day, we are awaiting people. As Christians, we're awaiting people. We're waiting for the return of our Lord. Together, that's one way that we wait, all of us. But individually, all of us have seasons of waiting that we're in. Whatever that may be, we're, we're awaiting people. But while we wait, let's remember that God is present. He's providentially active in every part of your life. And the beautiful thing of that is that it means that it's not for nothing. It's not pointless, it's not meaningless. The suffering you've experienced or will experience, it's not for nothing. The labor and the toil that you will put out or that you have, it's not for nothing. Even if you don't see anything come of it, it's not for nothing. Because God is providentially active. He's providentially present, even though at times it's hard to see. So the question for us is, will we be faithful and will we trust while we wait? Let's pray. Father, help us to see your hand at work. Help us to know that you are present. Help us to know that you are good. Lord, when we are tempted to doubt, we're tempted to wonder, when we have trouble seeing how you could be active or present, in your mercy, may you remind us that you are. May you hold us when we are not able to be held May we be a people who wait in joyful anticipation and deep trust that you have not abandoned us, but you are with us and you are at work in ways that are amazing. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.